Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this timely and sobering episode, I talked with Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University, who formerly served as Baltimore's health commissioner. Dr. Wen's a columnist for the Washington Post and an on-air commentator for CNN as a medical analyst. The first part of our conversation took place during this month's New Deal Leaders Conference, where we talked about her outlook on the pandemic and what we all need to do in the wake of surging cases while we wait for the vaccine to be widely distributed. After the conference, I caught up with Dr. Wen again to talk about her incredible personal story and what led her into a life of service. Dr. Wen offers a candid take on our response to COVID-19, but also an inspiring example of the kind of leadership our country and our world needs in this unprecedented crisis. Dr. Wen, welcome. Thank you very much. I am happy to join you and I'm glad to be having this conversation, even though I will warn you in advance that I am bearing not the most optimistic message today. Well, I, I think that it is a perfect time to have this conversation. And, you know, as we talk about all these other challenges we're going to be facing, whether it's the economy or things, really the baseline is getting this pandemic under control. So I think it's really fitting we're starting with with this particular challenge. And, I, and, and let me start with kind of a baseline question here. We're meeting when we all know COVID cases are skyrocketing, to your point about your optimism, worrying reports about even worsening uh, numbers as we head into holiday travel. So just to start, what's your assessment of kind of where we are right now and what you're expecting over the next few weeks? Where we are right now, Debbie, is that we are living our worst case scenario because so many of us in public health had warned of this moment of what would happen if we had, if we didn't suppress COVID-19 earlier on, that we're entering this winter when people are getting together indoors in close proximity to one another, when pandemic fatigue has set in, when our country is has gotten so polarized that something as basic as mask wearing has become a partisan touch point that we're going to see this really huge surge in cases. And as of the time that we're speaking today, we have now surpassed over 200,000 new daily infections from COVID-19. Our hospitals are on the brink of being so overwhelmed that not only patients with coronavirus, but other patients are not going to be able to get the care that they need. We're now surpassed over 100,000 new hospitalizations. This We're setting records every day for the last two and a half weeks when it comes to hospitalizations, and it's only increasing. Yesterday, we just had the highest number of daily deaths, and we know also that deaths are a lagging indicator, which means that as we are seeing the cases rise, the deaths will only increase in the days to come. We are we will surpass 3,000 deaths per day. We might even surpass 4,000 deaths per day at this point. And by the way, we have not even seen the impact of Thanksgiving travel yet because there's still a lack of time. And so the infections that occurred over Thanksgiving probably will first be manifest this weekend and early next week. And then we're going to see another massive surge 
after that. So where we are in the pandemic is a really dire point. And I think what I'm so concerned about on top of all this is that people's behavior are not changing. Back in March and April, when we were first seeing the surge, even back in June and July, when there was another surge in the Sun Belt and the South and, and the West, at least we saw that people, our government officials, were willing to dial up the restrictions and that people were willing to dial back their in-person gatherings. But we're not seeing that now. And I'm really, really concerned about what the next several weeks will what will hold for us. Um, we are on track to matching the horrific numbers seen in the 1918 pandemic. We are on track to seeing the types of numbers that we saw in world wars. And I think the worst part of it is that it doesn't have to be this way and that there are things that we can still do right now in order to prevent that awful tra trajectory from taking place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate your candor, if not your optimism. I think that, that, you know, we have to get this under control. So we need to deal with the facts as they are. To your point about um, what we should be doing, let's maybe let's start with we have so many elected officials with us today. Let's talk about public policy first. You talked about kind of the restrictions and whether we should be dialing back or not. You know, everything from school closures to restricting indoor dining, restricting gatherings, mask wearing. What is your best advice for the people who are thinking about making policy in their areas? How should they be looking at, at what um, options would be best for their for their community? Yeah, I mean, I very much understand the competing issues that we have. And, and I think it's important for us to talk about, and I know that none of you will ever use this language, but I think one of the problems that's occurred is this framing of somehow public health is the enemy of the economy. It's been framed by politicians, unfortunately, um, and wrongly, as it's somehow Democrats and doctors that want to shut everything down. And Republicans led by President Trump want to open everything up. I mean, that's obviously not true. And we also know that the reason the economy is suffering is that we were not able to control the virus, that controlling the virus is not the enemy of the economy. Actually, that's what allows us to get our schools back. That's what allows us to get our businesses open. And so I think the messaging is really important that we don't feed into this dichotomy, this false dichotomy of economy versus public health, but actually public health is the way that we will get economic re uh, re recovery that and I actually think in this case that having public health leaders not speak out on their own but joined by business leaders and economists is a really important way of getting that message back on track and so to that extent um, for all of you if you are discussing policies or rolling out especially if you're talking about new re restrictions that have to be applied right at some point when your hospitals are at the point that they cannot accept patients when our 911 systems are so overwhelmed that you get to a point of calling 911 and an ambulance isn't able to get to somebody with a heart attack for two hours. I mean, that's a total collapse in our system. When you get to that point, dramatic actions have to be taken. And they are really hard, especially after all this time. People are really sick of restrictions, and I understand that. But having trusted messengers stand with you will be so important. And so, yes, I think a lot of people will trust what doctors and public health leaders say. They will trust what you as a democratic leader might say. But I think it's also really important to recognize that for many people, we are not the trusted messengers, people in these groups, that you need to have a bipartisan group, for example, maybe having prominent Republican leaders join you will also be important in certain communities. In certain communities, pastors, religious leaders are really critical as the trusted messengers. Part of um, public health actually is recognizing that 
the most trusted messenger is often not yourself and that the messenger, in addition to the message, is really important. One more thing I'll add to this, too, is that masks. Masks, again, I am very disappointed and very frustrated that masks have become this cultural symbol, that it's been portrayed as a sign of weakness rather than a patriotic duty, as actually President-elect Biden has, has called it. But I think we can also do our part to reframe the mask debate and say that masks are what helps us from closing down the economy. An estimate by Goldman Sachs found that universal mask wearing will lead to our economy saving 5% of our GDP and a trillion dollars. You know, so I think framing it in this sense as masks are what help us to get back on track might be important too. Speaking about the messenger and, you know, the rhetoric that's been used, are you optimistic that with the change in the administration, there might be, uh, you know, a different message coming out of the White House that might help with this? And and what are you hoping in terms of a public policy perspective from the federal government, as well as what state and local leaders can do on the ground? I mean, we have already seen that the incoming Biden team has a message very strongly about what they will do. We have heard them, for for example, as one of their first acts, announce a, an advisory board of top public health experts and scientists and doctors, which is excellent. I hope that this group and other public health leaders will continue to have an elevated voice within the administration, will be in decision-making roles within the administration as well, not just as advisors, but also as the key decision-makers. I also think that the incoming Biden team needs to do even more with reaching out to groups who will be these credible messengers. So having economists stand side by side with public health leaders when, when announcing the steps that have to be taken to rein in the virus will be really important as well. On the federal level, to, to speak to your point, Debbie, about federal policies, there are federal policies that I think would be very useful, starting with, and I'm sure you are thinking about this too, stimulus. I mean, it's difficult for us to ask people to stay home from work if they don't have a home to go to, if they are afraid of losing wages. Social distancing is a privilege that not everyone has. So passing stimulus and helping to make businesses, small businesses and individuals whole so that they can abide by public health guidance will be really important. In addition, there needs to be a national approach to issues like testing, contact tracing, getting enough PPE and supplies, which is something that healthcare workers are running into problems again. Activating the Defense Production Act will be really important early on. Vaccine distribution, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the fact that we now have two vaccines that look like they are safe and very effective. But we know that it's not the vaccine that's going to save lives, it's the vaccination. And we need to, again, fund state and local health departments that are doing the work of standing up these vaccination programs. And there needs to be an attention to public messaging that, again, needs to be done at the local level. And so funding for local and state departments will be really critical here. On the local and state level, I think, again, all of you are the role models that people are going to be listening to. And so everything that you can do to spread the message, I mean, if there's one takeaway from all of this, it's this. We know that what is spreading COVID-19 at this time are informal gatherings. What I do not want to see happen is restaurants and bars to be shut down, only for people to be gathering in one another's homes. I don't want schools to close, 
only for kids to be gathering for play dates and birthday parties. And so it's just really critical that we spread the message. Do not gather indoors with people who are outside your immediate household. If you want to see people, see them outdoors spaced at least six feet apart, recognizing that in many parts of the country that may be very difficult. So maybe you reduce the time that you're spending with people. Maybe only have 20 minute get togethers because after that it gets too cold. I hate cold weather, so I'd be very cold after 20 minutes, but still that's better than zero minutes and it's certainly better than gathering indoors. So limit your non-essential travel. Do not travel over the holidays unless you absolutely must and do not gather indoors. Anything else? I've heard you talk in the past, Dr. Wen, about kind of how people can assess their risk. Is it at an individual level? What are those, you know, you've talked a little about the time and the, the place, you know, can you just walk us through that again, given the new, you know, reality in which we find ourselves? How are you telling people to think about their risk and what they should be doing? So I think that, I mean, this is an important point because we wouldn't want for, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about risk. And the other thing too, is we've learned a lot since the beginning, as in back in March and April, when we issued stay-at-home orders, we didn't know about how outdoors versus indoors make such a big difference. And so closing beaches and parks, not a good idea because that's going to drive people indoors more, but we know that now. So what determines risk? Proximity, activity, time, ventilation and mitigation measures. So how close you are to to someone, the proximity is really important. The activity you're doing also matters. If you are singing, talking loudly, very different than if everybody is sitting quietly and just breathing, which also expels some, some virus particles, but not nearly as much as if somebody is speaking loudly. The time is really critical. If you are indoors with someone for five minutes, very different than if you're indoors with, with someone for five hours sitting around a dinner table. By the way, eating, you also by definition cannot have your mask on during that time. So eating, drinking would also be high risk activities. Ventilation, very important. We now know that this is an airborne virus. And so if you have all your windows open and doors open and a fan blowing, very different than if you are in a closed room with people. And then the final factor that's really important is, is mitigation measures. We know, for example, that masks will reduce the rate of transmission by 70 to 80%. This is the reason why, for example, if we're thinking about kids in school, if you have reduced capacity in classrooms where everybody is wearing masks, where the class is well ventilated, the ventilation has increased, there are air filters, maybe windows are open, everybody is spaced at least six feet, ideally 10 feet apart. I mean, that makes for a much safer environment than if any of these are not followed. So I think another concept that people should keep in mind when thinking about risk is that of cumulative risk. So just because you're doing one activity that is high risk, that should mean that you should cut back your other high-risk activities. I know a lot of people who have the opposite impression who will say, well, my kids are back in school, so we might as well also have play dates, or I'm back at work, and so and I have to take public transportation, and so I might as well also have dinner parties. That's not it at all. Rather, you should be thinking about if I'm doing these high-risk activities because they are the, they are the things that I care about the most, then what are the other things that I should be cutting back in order to prioritize these highest value activities? That's really, I think that's super important. I don't I don't know that people look at that holistically like you're talking about. I think that's really a great message. You, you mentioned, Dr. Wen, the vaccines, obviously we're all so excited about the great news that's been coming out in terms of the timeliness and the what looks like effectiveness of the vaccine. What, what will you be watching for in terms of, as those start to roll out later this month, what, what are you thinking about in terms of access and prioritization? And how do you see kind of the timeline playing out over the, the coming months and getting more and more people vaccinated? 
Yeah, so the CDC had their advisory co committee on immunization practices just met this week, and they came out with a national with a national framework of who should get the vaccine first. And I think it should be no surprise in terms of the two groups that they are prioritizing. First is healthcare workers. We know that if our healthcare system is overwhelmed, that we don't have a functional healthcare system. And so we need to prioritize healthcare workers who are on the front lines treating patients who are getting exposed the most. Also, nursing home residents. Nearly 40% of those who have died from COVID are nursing home residents and staff. So clearly an extremely vulnerable group and also a group that will become ill and will then also overwhelm the healthcare system. And so prioritizing these groups, I think, um, makes a lot of sense. Ultimately, the decision is actually up to the states about exactly how they're going to allocate the initial amount that they're given. So the initial amount is about 20, is that we'll be able to vaccinate about 20 million people so 40 million doses is a two-dose vaccine, 20 million people. That's not a lot. And states, will it'll be in their power to decide who, how exactly they get these the doses that they're allocated. I would expect if the FDA is meeting next week, they have an advisory committee that by all accounts will probably sign off and give emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine, probably also the Moderna vaccine by the end of this month, which means that the first group to receive the vaccine will get shots in arms by the end of this month. By early next year, hopefully we'll have approval for the general population and then other priority groups, other essential workers, firefighters, police, teachers, et cetera, meatpacking workers, et cetera, they probably will be prioritized as well and will probably be able to have the, the vaccine by early next year. I would expect that the for the general populace, for most Americans, if all goes according to plan, that we should have access by late spring. There are some concerns that I have, including about children, because right now the vaccine is still, the Moderna vaccine hasn't even started being tested on children. The Pfizer is just beginning to get tested on older kids, 12 and older. It's really important that we get the testing done for children so that kids can come back to school, at least by the fall. And I hope that that's something that these manufacturers are going to be prioritizing too. Are you worried at all about the any reluctance from people to take the vaccine? I saw that President Obama and other folks have even started to say that they would be willing to take the vaccine on camera so that they can show the the safety of it. You know, as thinking again about the, so many people who, uh, that are with us who have you know platforms to help message. Thinking about getting ahead of the messaging on the vaccine. What advice do you have to kind of try to help make sure that the most people will will be willing to take this vaccine so that we can get where we need to be. Yeah, and actually, I think that's something that all of you need to help us with, too. Again, we know that the vaccine is not going to be effective in saving lives unless it is trusted, unless people literally take it. And so it it really is important for all of you to help us to spread the word. And I think you can do that by all of us rolling up our arms um, and getting the vaccine when it's our turn, not jumping the queue, but waiting our, our turn and getting and getting the vaccine. I love this idea about the president's getting the vaccine on camera. I think for many people, they will trust President um, Bush, President Clinton, President Obama, etc. I think that's a great idea. I think also sports stars, entertainment figures, other people within the community, pa pastors. I was just talking to one of the local pastors in Baltimore who said that he plans on having vaccinations 
vaccinations at his church and that he will be the first in line to get that vaccine. I think that will go a long way too. We have to also meet people where they are and recognize the reasons why people are not getting vaccinated. Some people are not getting vaccinated because they are they are anti-science. It may be harder to win them over. Some other people really believe in science, but they're concerned about political interference that may have influenced the vaccine approval process. We need to say very clearly that no shortcuts are being taken. And then I think still others may come from communities that have been the subjects of unethical and illegal experimentation before. And for these communities, there needs to be active outreach to rebuild that trust that cannot be done overnight. That's so important. Thank you for that. I think it is important that we all get ahead of that now. Um, Let me ask you this question, Dr. Wen, you know, what, what do you tell people who ask, you know, just when is this all going to be over? You know, who, I'm, you mentioned it earlier, you know that people are getting tired of um, restrictions and, you know, and that's frankly understandable potentially, but not, you know, just not okay. So, so in terms of uh, messaging and, and helping people understand, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, what's your, what's your advice on how to talk to people about, you know, when, when are we going to be done with this? What, you know, what, why do I have to stay diligent for, for, for a little while longer? What's your message to them? Well, we have great news about the vaccine, but the vaccines are not going to help us this winter. Hopefully, it'll help us by the spring if we all take the vaccine. But here's the thing, we just have to hold out for a little bit longer, not that much longer. And I know that people have sacrificed so much that Americans have given up so much and, you know, and have already suffered through a lot. But how tragic would it be for us to continue to lose thousands of lives a day when we have the end in sight, when we know what needs to be done? And so it's I know it's asking for a lot more, but we can do this together. Yeah. I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Wen, for being with us. You, you know, you've been such a constant presence throughout this pandemic on TV, and 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 you've also been a great resource and ally to our elected officials around the country when they are working on these issues. So I just want to thank you. I guess my 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 last question for you is: any advice to to those people who are out, you know, out there being the messengers like you are? There's you know, with this backdrop of the vitriol and the divisiveness, you know, kind of any any last words. It, you know, it is a sobering message you're giving today, but you know, also any last words of hope for the people who are out there on the front lines trying to to make sure that people are are staying the course, you know, the messengers out there. You know, there is a saying in public health that public health works when we are invisible, that by definition, the work that we do worked <laughs> when you don't see it because we prevented something from happening. And so it's sometimes it's frustrating because you see the people who are not wearing masks and who are not complying with um, with the uh, the public health guidance, and you see the people who end up in hospitals, but you don't see all the people whose lives you saved. And I just want to emphasize that for all the elected officials because you are you are on the front lines of this fight too. If you are a mayor, a county executive, you are the one trying to protect your population by issuing orders that are really unpopular but need to be done. If you are a city council member, a county council, a state legislator, et cetera, I mean, you're making policies that, again, are that many people are unhappy with. And it's really difficult to do the right thing. It's easy to do the right thing if if everybody agrees with you. It's difficult to do the right thing when you know that you will be on the right side of history. But people are angry with you now. And I just want to remind everyone that you are actually making a difference, that you are the first line of defense. Physicians, 
nurses, respiratory therapists, we are the last line of defense. We will be there when patients become desperately ill, but you are the ones helping to spread the message to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. And that work cannot be underestimated. And I just want to thank you for doing that. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for just reminding us to stay vigilant and um, and that we're going to get through this eventually. So thank you for your time so much, Dr. Wen. I really appreciate you being here. You're listening to An Honorable Profession with our guest, Dr. Lena Wen, former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and nationally renowned public health expert. She was speaking at the annual New Deal Leaders Conference. We resumed our conversation after the conference to give her a chance to share just a little bit of her remarkable path to this moment. A child from China whose parents gained political asylum in this country when she was eight, Dr. Wen entered college at 13, graduated with highest honors at 18, and earned a Rhodes Scholarship. We talked about her decision to become a doctor and what she wants to accomplish as one of the nation's most respected public health voices in this uniquely challenging time. So, Dr. Wen, you moved to the United States with your parents from China when you were eight, and you became a citizen in 2003. I've heard you describe uh, your life a little bit like a typical American immigrant experience. Um, Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, sure. I think the typical experience is one that is unique to each and every one of us. So my parents and I came just before I turned eight, and my parents and I came with $40 to our name, We depended on many of the services that some may consider to be or some may call entitlements, but for us were our lifeline. My parents worked two or three jobs each at a time, and yet we still depended on Medicaid for our health insurance. We depended on food stamps at times. My mother, which was pregnant with my little sister, depended on WIC for nutrition and other services. I I was in public school all the way throughout, including college. And for us, that's what allowed me to pursue my dreams of becoming a doctor and serving patients. It's what allowed my sister to also graduate from college and become a Peace Corps volunteer. And, you know, I think about all of this as this is the privilege that we have had to pursue our wildest dreams and our parents' wildest dreams for us as we now contribute to America. That's so wonderful. And you you mentioned college. Actually, I think remarkably, you entered an early entrance program at California State University, Los Angeles, I think when you were 13 years old, graduating with honors and a bachelor's degree in biochemistry, and you were on to medical school when you were only 18. I'm just curious, how how early did you know you wanted to be a doctor? And you you mentioned some of the things that shaped your experience early on, but what experiences led you to know that you wanted to pursue that path? So when I was about, I want to say 10 or so, I watched a boy who was a couple of years younger than me have an asthma attack. And I had asthma, so I knew what it felt like to have an asthma attack and to not breathe and to really gasp for air. And in this case, I could see that the medications were not working. His grandmother, though, was so afraid to call for help because he was undocumented and she was undocumented and she was afraid of what would happen. And so I actually watched this boy when I was about 10 years old die in front of me because his family was too scared to seek help for him. And of course, the fault is not of his grandmother. The fault is of our healthcare system, that we do not see health and healthcare as a basic human right. 
and where people are treated differently depending on where they come from, and their lives are valued differently because of of the country in which they happen to be born. And so that experience is, is, I think, for anyone would be so deeply ingrained, and certainly for me was was one of the reasons why I wanted to um, to pursue medicine. I actually had known I was one of those annoying people who known for a long time that I wanted to be a doctor because where I grew up too, I saw how zip code determines. Not just how long, but also whether you happen to to live as well. I will say that in college, I was really fortunate to have mentors because you know I came from a background where I didn't know people who were doctors. I mean, I had this idea that I wanted to become one, but I didn't know how I was literally going to get there. And I just was very fortunate、um, that I met a、um, a mentor early on in college as part of a work study program, Dr. Raymond Garcia, who kept on pressing me on what I wanted to do. And at that time, I was actually too scared to tell him what I really wanted because I thought he would laugh at me. I thought that people would laugh if I said to them I wanted to be a doctor because, after all, what do I know about what's involved? And so, I. Always said that what I wanted to do was to become a lab tech, and one day he pressed me one more time. I said, "But tell me, what do you really want to do?" And I told him that I wanted to be a doctor. And he said, "I I knew that that was going to be the case. I will help you get there." And he introduced me to other、um, former students of his who told me about, gave me advice on taking the MCATs, and talked to me about volunteering opportunities and what kinds of courses I should be taking, and all these things that maybe a lot of people take for granted, but I think again are、um, a, a reflection of how opportunity in this country is not equal. Talent is universal, but that opportunity is not, and that's why、um, teaching and、um, and being a mentor myself is such an important part of what I do. Thank that's so important, and、uh, you know, in, in political realm too, which we often talk to people in in public office, mentorship is so important. Thank you for sharing sharing that. I want to talk a little bit about your transition after you did work.、Uh, I think both in Boston and Washington D.C. as an emergency room physician, you were appointed to the Baltimore City Health Commissioner position in 2014. And I'm curious, had you been thinking about a role in government before that, or or how did that come about, and what were your favorite parts of that job? Oh, it was my dream job.、Um, I loved being the health commissioner for my city,、um, the city's doctor. I I loved just waking up every day. With just this one goal, which was to serve the residents of my city in improving health and and reducing disparities, you know, I had I don't know that I would have necessarily articulated this as a goal, but I did know a previous health commissioner who actually told me about the the job, and when he first told me about it, my first reaction was. Oh well, I'm not qualified because here are all the reasons why I'm not qualified, and it's just interesting because I reflect on that a lot. I've reflected on this a lot since that moment. Ever since, because I remember when I was the health commissioner and there was a deputy position open, and I talked to、um, the person that I thought would be a shoe in for 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 this job, who was the assistant commissioner who had been with the health department for ten years, who was exceptionally qualified, and her first reaction was, "Oh, I'm not qualified because." Here are the ten requirements. I I only meet eight, and I said to her at that time. But here's this other person who turns out in this case to be a white man, 
who you know is has been with the health department for six months looked at the list of requirements and said, "I meet three out of these ten ten requirements. I am perfect for this job." <laughs> and in my case, I was really fortunate that the uh, about the the individual who um, really uh, who had told me initially about the job had said to me, "Well, you should look into this more. You should apply. You never know what will happen." And you know, I I think it's again behooves all of us to find those who might otherwise not see the potential in themselves, and to really encourage them to step up. I love that. Thank you. You now, of course, as many of our listeners will know, are one of the really the most visible and trusted experts in the whole country on the coronavirus, particularly through your work uh, on CNN and with the Washington Post. What's that experience been like, particularly when the country is so divided, even on basic scientific fact? And, and how do you see, you know, what, what's your role? What, how do you see your role in this? What are you hoping to do in that role? Yeah, I mean, I see my role normally as a clinician and public health expert. And so normally it's to teach my patients. In this case, um, because there is so much need for public education, I see my role as educating the public. There is so much news, so much happening around coronavirus. A lot of it is accurate, but a lot of it is also disinformation. And a lot of it is very confusing. I mean, you can type into PubMed, our clinical research database, and find hundreds of studies being published every day about coronavirus. And so how do people sort out fact from fiction and also know what is the impact on them? What's the impact on, um, on what is the news you can use, if you will? How are these studies going to impact how you live your life and, and, um, and are adjusting for risk and thinking about how we can still see our loved ones, but doing it so doing it in a safe way? Or how do we think about kids going to school or, or going to work and taking tra- transport to go to work? I mean, all these things were quickly evolving. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to contribute all of my experiences. And really, I think that everything that I've done to date has led me to step up at this time, as so many others have, in order to spread accurate information. And just to the point that you raised, Debbie, I think that it is also so disappointing to see that so much of this response has been politicized and that something as basic as a um, as a public health imperative of wearing masks has become a partisan symbol. And so I think it's even more important than ever for the voice of science and public health to speak up. During the Trump administration, we also saw scientists who were muzzled and not allowed to speak directly to the American people. And I think that has made this to be an even more urgent calling for me and for so many others who have found this urgent use of our voice at this time. Yeah, well, we we appreciate it. I know Americans across the country appreciate it. Um, Let me just finish with this question, Dr. Wen. It's something we like to ask guests here who are not elected officials, since we mostly talk to elected officials. Have you ever thought yourself about running for public office or for elected office? That is not what I think is the right match um, for my for um, for what I want to do. Although I have such great respect for people who run for elected office, and we need people to serve in every way. And you know, something that I tell students also is you need to find your own voice and where your contribution is most needed. Harking back to something that one of my mentors, Senator Barbara Mikulski, likes to say, which is that you should do what you're best at and what you're needed for. 
Hmm. I love that. Well, that's such a perfect way to end this. Thank you so much, Dr. Wen, for being with us for particularly in these uh, really concerning times as you laid out uh, sobering times. And we uh, just appreciate your candor and your diligence at uh, educating us and keeping us uh, all healthy and safe out here. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Debbie. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>